Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to SyrupCast. This is Shruti Shakar, reporter with Mobile Syrup. It's April 4th, and today we're going to be doing a very interesting and special episode. I have two very special and amazing women sitting in front of me. I have Emily Jackson from National Post. Hello. And I have Alicia Sikirska from Yahoo Finance. Thank you for having us. And you guys may be wondering why I have these two lovely ladies here with me. Why are you guys here? Well, the the three of us have uh, just returned about a week ago from a trip to Shenzhen in China for a tour of Huawei's headquarters. So dun, dun, dun. this is kind of our um, <laughs> debrief. Uh, debrief. The debrief, for the sure. Debrief. Yes. Yeah. And um, I mean, I don't know if you guys heard the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Christine Dobby. I am a woman. I am one of the only women on Mobile Syrup's reporter list and i want to have more podcasts with women what do you guys think you guys think that's a good idea i love that idea it's a great idea (laughs) so we're continuing with the trend and now we're going to be talking about huawei we're going to be breaking down what we have sort of learned our reaction to the trip and everything with that as well as some of our thoughts with respect to Huawei opening its doors to reporters this isn't the first time that they've opened their doors um just in the past couple of months. Um, If you want a little breakdown of everything that Huawei has, or everything that's happened with Huawei in the past couple of months, make sure you head to mobilesyrup.com. But even with each other's publications, Yahoo Finance and with National Post, there are a plethora of articles on Huawei. Um, But it all really started when Meng Wanzhou, its global CFO, uh, was arrested in December uh, by Vancouver authorities for fraud-related charges. Since then, so many things have happened. I mean, uh, Huawei has sued the U.S. The U.S. has sued Huawei. Huawei has sued Canada. <laughs> I mean, I think the list is endless. Um, there are also 13 charges of bank and wire fraud against Meng Wanzhou, uh, Huawei, and its uh, alleged subsidiary. Uh, it's a, it's subsidiary Skycom. Um, and so, yeah, if you have any interest in any of those articles, make sure you go online and check those out. But we're here to talk about the the trip. So, yeah, as Emily had mentioned earlier, we were invited by Huawei to go on this trip. How long ago did they invite us? Like, was it almost a month ago at this point? Yeah, yeah, about a month ago, um, we get this invite, you know, as Huawei's um, obviously in the middle of this uh, geopolitical crisis mm-hmm. between Canada and the U.S. and China. Canada kind of caught in the middle of these two superpowers. And Huawei knows that as the U.S. is on this mission to try to ban Huawei from its networks and to get its allies to do the same thing, Huawei knows that it's in a PR crisis. Absolutely, so, yeah. So we get this invite. Do you want to come see... Huawei's headquarters. We'd love to offer you a tour with this rarely before provided access. Um, 
Now, of course, this is an email they sent to many reporters, uh, but definitely, definitely, obviously piqued my interest, obviously piqued both of your interest to Mm -hmm. see more about this company that um, has previously been so reclusive. Yeah. And I mean, they've been in the in the world for 30 years now. So for them to open its doors to the world and to to reporters is it's definitely piqued our interest. What about you, Alicia? Yeah, I think it came on the heels of the roundtable here in Canada with uh, another executive. There, that was I think eighteen reporters yes, were there was. total. Yeah, um, and then shortly after that was when we got the email. Yeah, um, saying yeah. that they wanted to do that, and I I thought it was really interesting, and it definitely piqued my interest and my editor's interest because. I mean, this is a company that's in the news constantly here in Canada and is playing, whether it likes to or not, it's, it's in the middle of this diplomat, deteriorating diplomatic relations between Canada and China. It's very much at the heart of it. So, um, yeah, as soon as we got that email, I think all of us probably went to our editors and yeah. were like, we need to go. But also more so, I think it's so funny that they invited you alicia because you work for an american company yahoo finance is owned by verizon if, I, if i'm correct right yeah yeah we are and um so yeah that's, that's kind of ironic <laughs> it 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 is um yeah it's interesting because obviously um the company that owns yahoo verizon uh is not allowed to use mm-hmm. any of always technology it's currently banned in the u.s yeah so that's that's quite unique um Anyways, we all ended up going on this trip. We went on different uh, different flights. Uh, we landed in Shenzhen, and I remember meeting you guys. I mean, I, I've known you guys on Twitter. I, I met you, Alicia, at the very briefly at the roundtable, but we we had sort of a brief breakfast, and then we were asked to do sort of a rundown with what the next couple of days were going to look like, and that was quite unique. Um, they told us they were going to take us on a campus tour. Um, they were going to show us the quote-unquote Huawei University. We would meet with some executives on talking about 5G security um, and their digital transformation. And then uh, eventually at some point we would have an interview with one of their uh, chairman, um, Eric Shu. So Eric Shu, if you all don't know, he's more in charge of the Canadian aspect of, of things. So um, yeah, that was that was very interesting. When you guys arrived into China, what were your initial reactions? Like, what did that feel like for you? I think one thing that is interesting to note um, is where we were actually staying, which oh, yes. is um, <laughs> it's called the Amber Prime Hotel. Um, but it's actually only it's owned by Huawei. Hmm. It is basically exclusively for employees and their guests and their customers. So I found it really interesting yeah. being in there. It was uh, almost like a Pleasantville-esque because like they had little shops like, you know, people could basically roam around and it was very almost like a gated community, if you will, um, which, which was very interesting. Yeah. And at, at uh, breakfast, I was noticing um, you could like at one point I heard Spanish being spoken and um, it was clear that there were people from all over the world that were being shuffled through at, at different points. So I thought... Um, yeah, I thought that was pretty fascinating. I also thought it was very fascinating that there were cameras everywhere. I think that was also very unique. Like around the city. Oh, yeah, around the city. Like that was very 
I don't know. What do you think about that, Emily? Like, <laughs> yeah. So this the the blanket surveillance was interesting, and it came up again during our tour because Huawei is really involved with providing the network equipment for um, the surveillance in Shenzhen, which they're using as part of smart their smart city initiative. Mm-hmm. So it's used for things like you know, ticketing drivers who don't have their seatbelts on or whose passengers don't have their seatbelts on. It's used to make sure the buses stop um, appropriately before the crosswalks. And it's used, we were told this one wild story. Oh my goodness. About, repeatedly by different people. Yeah, oh, repeatedly. Yeah. So, and so they say that after these cameras were installed, installed the unsolved crime rate in um, for murders and rapes, so serious crimes, dropped to zero in Shenzhen. And they told us a story about this little kid that was kidnapped by some lady. And because of the cameras and because of the way everything is connected in in China, um, you know, this woman who they recognized from the cameras had bought a train ticket and they were able to apprehend her at the train station before this kid was actually kidnapped. So uh, the surveillance was for sure this remarkable aspect. I, I know there's tons of surveillance cameras, whether you're in Toronto or New York or London, but the big difference is the they're, real, not, they're yeah. not centrally monitored. No. And there, they're centrally monitored, which is pretty wild. And I think the one story that really caught me off guard as well was, and we weren't allowed to mention this individual's um, name, so I, I can't <laughs> say it on this podcast, unfortunately, but uh, the... Huawei spokesperson or representative that we met explicitly told us that we weren't allowed to use their name. And if we did, then their boss would be very upset with them. <laughs> so we weren't able to use the name. So anyways, um, the the individual basically said, you know, I, well, I, I posed the question, you know, in, in Canada, we're having this issue of sidewalk labs and how um, there's a, a case revolving around who owns the data, uh, collecting the data and who owns that. And is it sidewalk labs? Is it Google? Is it the city of Toronto. And this individual said, oh, no, it, it, I absolutely agree. I think it should be owned by the country. That's how it is. And and then they, they went on to say the story about how when they were researching about coming to China two or three years ago, they heard all these stories about crazy surveillance, et cetera. And they were very nervous about it. But then when they came to China, everything almost seemingly disappeared and that fear just vanished. And knowing that their daughter is now outside at 1 a.m. in the morning doesn't give them fear at all because they're being watched. And I just thought that that was so, you know, kind of creepy. (laughs) I thought it was it was interesting when we were having that conversation because I think it showed we were pushing back a little bit Mm -hmm. um, because as you were mentioning with Sidewalk Labs, privacy is such a concern and and that data management and for them they just looked at it as a they they said it was a value proposition you know what i get in exchange for losing that privacy but at, at the same time not expecting privacy in public spaces i almost wonder if the people in in shenzhen at least you know know anything other it's it's kind of like with me a lot of people ask me oh you've been vegetarian your whole life do you ever wish you ate meat and i said well i don't really know anything other than than being a vegetarian like i don't know what i'm missing out i almost wonder if in shenzhen the people there don't know anything better other apart from being sur- like surveillance or having that security and that privacy taken away from them i don't know if that's the case i mean certainly there is a difference between the Western approach to what constitutes privacy and the approach taken in China. Um, 
I mean, understatement <laughs> of the year, I guess. But um, I, I, I it, it was interesting to me and striking almost to see um, some of the Huawei people we were speaking to were Americans and to see how they had kind of yeah. adapted to this. Um, you know, America, land of the free. Mm-hmm. Don't you dare pay attention to me. I don't want the government in my business. Um, it was striking to see how they had adapted to it in an, with an argument that's commonly used for pro-surveillance. And that argument is, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't be concerned about this. Um, and so, so that was a, a, a really interesting thing that we, we did learn about Huawei and we learned how integral they are in developing these smart cities, which is kind of cool. Yeah. You know, everything down from garbage can sensors to these cameras that can be involved with traffic or in um, the case of Shenzhen, tracking humans and stopping <laughs> crime, much like the Tom Cruise thriller Minority Report. <laughs> I know, and I think that that is a very interesting point because that is the type of technology that everyone is moving towards. And I think that there is a fear behind that type of technology because there is a lot of unknown behind it. I mean, obviously, there are many companies that are focusing on um, 5G technology, testing this, um, the surveillance behind things, the Internet of Things. And there's a lot of uncertainty around it. But it was also on the flip side, pretty interesting to see how they're working with oil and the oil and gas sector, how they're working with the banking system, how they're working with um like you mentioned, the garbage cans and like monitoring whether or not they're full or not and when you have to clean it. So I think that was that whole I, that that digital transformation center that they took us to was, I mean, from a technology perspective, very interesting. And from the perspective, it just shows that 5G is going to be everywhere in every industry. Yeah. It, you know, there was even like the air, airplanes um, section. And I know, Alicia, you covered transportation. So <laughs> I mean, it's just Railways so as well. Railways. everywhere. Yeah. And, and for all of these industries, 5G in, in a way that 4G, you know, made made uh, mobile networks amazing for consumers. And now mm. we can, you know, send each other Instagram stories to our heart's content. But 5G is more about industrial applications. And yeah. I think that's where, you know, these concerns about Huawei stem from. It's um, these networks are not just about you and I sending videos of, I don't know, whatever cool thing we saw in Shenzhen, (laughs) but it's about these industrial applications with potentially sensitive information. Yeah, for sure. And and the fact that it's, it could be infiltrating in almost every industry, if you want to think about it, like that's pretty massive. Um, Where did we go after the Digital Transformation Center? I think it was, we continued on with the tour and then it was, we went to another area that was talking about the cybersecurity and 5G. Yeah. Can we just mention the ridiculously opulent chandelier and hall before the Digital Transformation (laughs) Center? When you walked in there, it was just so striking. It was insane. The opulence, it was I mean, but stunning. I think it was everywhere, right? Like all over. Even even the Amber Prime Hotel was just like, I think it was like the size of like a tr- a small Toronto apartment. <laughs> like it yeah. was insane. It was so extra. But the the chandelier was like particularly was like mm-hmm. it, it hung across this entire ceiling in this vast like cavernous room with marble floors inlaid with these beautiful orchid patterns like it was a just- movie sized screen where all the different applications that Huawei technology is used for is being shown off and actually the um the no name spokesperson uh, which also is kind of a contradiction when it comes to being open but 
that's I, a whole I, ju- other I just thing. rolled my eyes, but you can't see that on a, on a podcast. Yeah. But he said that is that is usually the first stop for prospective customers. That's where they bring them to kind of wow them right off the top. And yeah. it is impressive. It is. It's very beautiful. And uh, if you guys want to see that, we did put it on our mobile syrup um, Insta stories. <laughs> but I'll try and see if we can link it in this um, in this podcast article when you click into it. But it's 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 pretty impressive. It's very very big and opulent. And um, and yeah. and I think a, a really you know, it does have that wow factor. And part of the reason is because Huawei is a private company. It's owned, it says it's owned by its employees exclusively. It says its founder only owns about 1% of the company. Um, but it it doesn't report its finances publicly in the same way that a publicly traded company has to. So it does release an annual report, but um, it, it isn't accountable to the public. So, you know, this is, we have to take their reporting as what they say. Um, and then seeing this, you know, this opulent room, you're like, okay, yeah, I believe you guys made a hundred billion, billion dollars last year. I would also like to see their flower budget. Oh my God. Oh yeah. They have a lot of beautiful flowers, <laughs> but I, mean, I wanted to take some for my wedding. <laughs> um, but yeah, after after that, we did tour the rest of their campus, which, by the way, you know, putting aside everything, it is a very beautiful campus. It's massive. I mean, I don't even know how big it is, but it is huge. And I think they have, I think they said, was it 40,000 employees in the Shenzhen campus? Um, but then they're also, <laughs> they built this brand new campus i think it was north of shenzhen um in a place called Dongguan. but i might be butchering that name so i really do apologize that's correct did i say that did i say that correctly okay great um yeah and it's it's basically modeled after 12 european cities which in itself is just (laughs) and there's a train that was imported i believe from switzerland no 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 she said she said that she wasn't sure about that okay but it there's literally a train. There's that, a train that goes from Paris to Burgundy, to, it, like it's, to it's, all the different uh, European cities within Dongguan. Yes, and um, in that campus, there's going to be twenty five thousand employees. Um, and then also, it's it's kind of interesting to note that they have residences for their employees. So in the Shenzhen campus, um, I believe there's how many employees. 3,000. Yeah. So there's 3,000 employees that have residential, um, I guess, places that they can live. And then in the new European campus, I'm going to call it the European campus. Um, they have, it's, I believe 6,000 employees will be able to live. And so that's pretty unique that they give this opportunity for their, um, their employees. But I mean, it's very evident that they're expanding and they're growing. Uh, more recently in Canada, uh, their ch- one of their chairmen um, had announced that they're going to be adding 2,000 more employees. Sorry, not 2,000, 200. I apologize. 200. My gosh, can you imagine if it was 2,000? That, that would be an even bigger story. Yeah. <laughs> Exponentially bigger. No, they're, they're uh, adding 200 new employees to their existing uh, 800 employees that are currently in in Canada, uh, or is it uh, 1,000 employees that are in Canada around? So it, they'll they'll have a l- over a thousand employees now in Canada, um, and and of that, the majority of their employees are focusing on R and D, which also I thought that was pretty interesting because the majority of employees in Shenzhen and in Dongguan are focused on R and D. And Canada is actually the third, as we learned through our interview with Eric Xu, um, it's the 
their third biggest market where they spend money on R&D behind number one being China, obviously, to the United States and three, Canada, which is very, very interesting. It's part of the reason that Huawei has been so successful. Um, analysts that I've spoken to, um, technology analysts from around the world, credit Huawei's success to its massive R&D budget. It's um, it's 40% of its staff, and it has 188,000 employees around the world. And by my math, that's about 75,000 people are dedicated exclusively to R&D. And that's, that's staggering. Um, that is certainly far more than its competitors uh, than any public company right any public they company. can just spend so much money on totally. research and development because they are a private company and they don't they don't respond to the quarterly whims of shareholders they've got this long-term view they told us that they spend uh, 10 to 15 percent of their revenue on r&d every year even if it's a bad year even if it's a winter the way they described it they're going to spend that money on r&d and it is that they've got um they're far and ahead when it comes to new patents for new technology. They have a ton of research spending at universities. That, that That's why it's bit so big in the U.S. and Canada, right? It's these institutions that they're um, spending money at. And uh, that's the one thing that I think has opened everyone's eyes to just how critical this R&D spending is. And the people I've spoken with have said that's why Huawei is in the leading position that it is trying to hold on to. Well, and also, I mean, if we can take a step back as well and talk about some of the R&D that they have been working on. I mean, it's stuff that I've never even seen or heard of. They have like an entire materials lab that just focuses on, you know, like, how to make sure your technology is reliable in different weathers. Um, their production facilities was interesting on how they make their cell phones. Like that's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. And the the materials lab I thought was particularly interesting because it's all about making that technology um, last longer mm. as well. And so, didn't they say something about how they only look in ten years uh, a ten year t- time frame of their materials? Right? Or, yeah, or, they're trying to. I believe it's trying to make it last for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. And that. When you're selling equipment, you know, if your competitor says that they'll have to come in and do some kind of part replacement in five years, if you can come in and say 10 and double that, I mean, that goes a long way. Yeah. And and they actually were able to show us some of the, um, I guess, uh, the examples of their materials that they're testing. And and some of these cases were these... um sort of the cases that you'd put these radio this radio equipment in and you could actually lift it and it was super super light and there are these big boxes they're probably six feet tall and one and a half feet wide and you could lift it like nothing it was almost like lifting a like a billboard or, or like something. a small little laptop or something okay, yeah i'm exaggerating but, but like it was really cool and and also that um gives them an advantage when it comes to installation right because instead of needing a crane and a couple guys to do this um you can have one person install it. So from a telecom perspective, that's also a cheaper install. Well, it's not only, again, going back to that telecom perspective, I mean, when you're looking at something like 5G, which will require a lot more power, um, while the operators have said that it's essentially adding to the current infrastructure that's already there, that also plays into a lot of, uh, into how you're going to what kind of or rather what kind of materials you're going to use because if you're going to be adding on to something you don't want it to burden that 
existing equipment, right? You want to include equipment that's actually durable and reliable for how many ever years you're going to be using it for. And especially with something like 5G, when anything could go wrong with 5G, right? You know, we don't even know how, how much it can withstand, basically. So to see that actually in action was was very very unique and it was cool and going back to the tour that was part of the message that they were definitely trying to uh, sell to us was kind of how Huawei became so successful Um, and part of that is is this you know they kept repeating this uh, customer centric focus and instead responding in a way that like they gave an example I believe it was um, rats eating cables (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. They said um, they were having some problems with rats eating through cables in um, a rural rural places, and their competitors. They, they said they hmm. said their competitors were just telling their customers, "Well, you better rat proof your building, like kill the rats, essentially." And what Huawei did instead was make rat proof cables. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, taking that to the next level. Yeah. So, I mean, to be clear bucket of salt because <laughs> this is what they are that's why we were there is to to hear this story and, and to hear their mm-hmm. their promotion but i did think it was interesting to see the technology behind this do you think that huawei has a an opportunity to be um you know the the number one company right now i, I again i don't want to get too much into the nuances of like samsung and apple and you know all of that but from my previous reporting i do know that huawei has said in the past that its competitors are apple and samsung and right now in the markets it's it's it is growing it is a it's like one of the number one you know companies that not only for smartphone providers Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. But also for telecommunications equipment, do you think that with what you guys learned and saw, it's it's possible for Huawei to become a number one provider in this type well, of equipment? Well, it is the number one provider for telecom equipment. Mm-hmm. So for this, uh, the all this five G equipment we're talking about, it sells the most. Um, it it obviously doesn't sell anything to the United States, but it still is the top equipment supplier. But it's, it's smartphones, like you said, are becoming so much more impor- important. It's uh, it's catching up with Samsung and Apple. I mean, I don't know about smartphones. <laughs> it's not my area of expertise. But I mean, they've got a ton of money and they're investing a lot in research and development. So I certainly wouldn't count them out. But they do have to overcome, you know, the public perception. So I think a big thing will be getting access to that U.S. market, which they're shut out of right now. And it's huge. I know that they've said they don't need it, but still. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, it's it's very interesting 
also to see the types of markets that Huawei has sort of catered towards in the past. They have said that they have gone to developing countries and um, that's where they sort of have expanded and grown their business. And that's where where everything started. Like they, they started out in Africa. They started out in um, many parts of Asia. And then their first real market was in Europe. That was really, that was, that was their biggest contract. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to see the way that they're developing their com- company. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit to our interview with, with uh, Mr. Shu, because I think that is a very important part of this entire trip. I think that was sort of the crux of this, of this trip um, to have that access. Of course, we, we were told that that was the interview that we were going to get. And that was, um, you know, we would have, we would be able to basically ask him any questions that we wanted to ask him. What were your, what were your reactions to that interview? Um, I think one of the most interesting points, uh, and I think Emily should probably talk about this one more, was when Emily had actually asked Eric Shu why Huawei should be trusted and, and basically gave him the opportunity to make that argument. And he responded with an interesting analogy. Yeah, yeah. I, and and also for for those who haven't read Emily's article, uh, we'll somehow link it as well, or y- go to Emily's Twitter. We'll get em- we'll, at the end. We'll 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 do Twitter handles and stuff. But this was a very unique uh, <laughs> response that Emily received. Yeah, so I, I'm just uh, pulling up the article here because I I want it to be uh, I want to quote it accurately. Um, we're talking about this question of trust, right? And we've been, we've been through this dog and pony show now for a day, and we um, and we'd seen what they have to say, and you know they are on this big charm offensive, but for whatever reason, it, it's difficult to convince people that they are trustworthy. It's still having a lot of problems, obviously, in the U.S. Canada's in the midst of a security review, so I asked him. Um, I asked him how we could, you know, how does it move forward? How does Huawei gain this trust when it's difficult to prove that it hasn't done anything or won't in the future? And it got a bit philosophical. He turned <laughs> it around on me and he says, and he's trying to use an example that you can't prove a negative. Oh, I should, and, I should also, or we should mention that um, he did speak through an interpreter. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's important. Speaking through an interpreter, he says... Well, Emily, I will say you probably will kill someone. I will say I have a suspicion that you might commit a crime or kill someone before you go to see God someday. That is a suspicion you can never prove negative. Basically just accuses Emily of murder. <laughs> or like, or in the like weird minority report surveillance thing that I felt like I was in the whole time. You know, this, he knows that I'm going to commit murder someday. But I mean, it was, it was a you know, a comment that was made with some dark humor. Um, I did notice he was, he was kind of joking around, even through an interpreter, you could pick that up a bit, but it was dark. It was dark humor and also very, a very unusual strategy for a top executive who has invited reporters from Canada to try to convince us that Huawei is not a national security threat. Very, unusual and remarkable choice for him to um use the example of murder Mm -hmm. it was it was a very striking moment one of the most um unusual i've had in my career (laughs) yeah that i would say so and we all kind of in that moment you know there were four reporters in the room everyone kind of everyone was taken aback it wasn't just me Mm -hmm. no no it wasn't i also found it interesting when he 
compared Huawei to Boeing. Oh, yes. which yes. was also an interesting choice I found, considering what was ha- what is happening right now with Boeing and the 737 Max eight and grounding of the jet. And, you know, a lot of people are saying this is a crisis for Boeing. And um, interesting that he decided to compare the company to that. And also interesting because China is one of Boeing's biggest customers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, China or the U.S. wants China to buy its airplanes. China wants the U.S. to buy its telecom equipment. And as, as we speak, you know, there's developing news today that the Americans and the Chinese are getting closer to a trade deal. So, um, you know, maybe I'm looking for veiled messages here, but I think this it just kind of brought it home that we're operating here in this larger conversation about the um, trade issues between China and the United States. I think it, it was also interesting that a lot of the response, not a lot, sorry, that that's that's not fair for me to say, but a, a, a few responses that Mr. Xu um, said were very vague. They, they were incredibly vague. And um, I remember asking him, you know, why, why are you letting, if, if you're so hell-bent upon um, asking reporters to come, if you're so open about, you know, what you're doing and you're trying to, you know, shape a new image for Huawei, why are you letting the government speak on your behalf? Because a lot of the things that are happening uh, will end up having the government responding in some way, some form of retaliation. You know, as we all know, there are two Canadians that are currently still in captive for, uh, as the government, the Chinese government has said, quote unquote, a national security threat. They've also uh, sentenced one Canadian who is a drug dealer to death. Um, so it's it's interesting the way that the government responded. And I, I, I definitely recall him saying, well, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, it, it, it's something that the Canadian government would do as well, almost suggesting that like the Canadian government speaks on behalf of, of the companies that are in Canada, which is, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case, but I, uh, to, to a certain extent, like I do think if a Canadian executive was detained in China, the Canadian government would say something, but, but you're right in the sense that, um, in the sense that there there does seem to be closer ties between Huawei and the the Chinese government, and that's the, that's that thing that mm-hmm. he is a bit vague about what those ties actually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of it was also reading between the lines. Um, at one point, I think it was actually in response to your question about um, what the government of China have been, has been doing in response to all this, and then he pointed out um, in regards to the. Uh, detention of Meng Wanzhou, uh, like, why is this happening in Canada? Mm. And so we asked a follow-up question that was, well, can, what do you mean by you, that? Why right. are you raising that question? Can you explain it? And he kind of didn't... Well, he did it. And then he also said, why didn't I get arrested? I was in the UK when, when it all happened. Why wasn't I arrested? And I really wanted to respond by saying, because there's charges against Miss Meng and not you. <laughs> so <laughs> that's but, why you didn't get arrested. But the yeah, implication think, there is that what you also are doing criminal behavior or I think that wasn't his implication. His implication is that um, these charges are baseless. I think, yeah, and that there's a lot more politics around it. Yes, exactly. I think that's what he wanted us to take from it. But again, it's kind of unclear at this point because he didn't specify fully. No, and it was, I mean, it, it was an, sort of an oddly structured interview. It was very uh, slow-paced and, you know, with the added difficulty, of course, of speaking through a translator that, you know, adds a lot of time. So the, it was more of a Q 
Q&A versus a discussion like we're having right now. Yeah. And the interview was, it was more than 90 minutes. It yeah. was more than an hour and a half. But it was, I think, almost two hours. At, at, uh, yeah, I believe yeah, so. Yeah, and um, there were four of us in there, uh, a Global Mail reporter as well. If you really did take count, it was two, pe- two, two questions, questions each per person. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think, I mean, it, that's just kind of the, the format with the translator, I think. But um, yeah. Yeah, but it made for... I mean, it was a very interesting experience. And despite the, um, you know, the constraints of how it was set up, I, I still think um, we got a sense of Eric Shu and, mm-hmm. and his, his take on some of these issues. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't, uh, you weren't at the round table, but I know that Alicia and I were at the round table. And so now at this point, we've met two of the three, um, you know, chairmen. And I think it does, it, we, at least from my perspective, I have a better understanding of how they function and what kind of company they are. But it, there are still a lot of, um, I would say, missing links maybe, or it's it just, there still needs to be almost a sense of, there needs to be more openness. I mean, you know, they did take us, uh, apart from that interview, they did take us on a tour about how they test their 5G equipment and all of their equipment for that, in, in that respect. Um, they showed us how they have special facilities for their clients to actually come in and do their own testing if they don't want Huawei to do the testing, which I thought that was pretty interesting and how like their entire cybersecurity team is, is focused on and how there's like an independent body that does all the security and and everything i think that all of that was very interesting however there there still is a there's a lot of questions i mean i have many many more (laughs) questions for huawei um but i think the question of how um open they are is um is an interesting one and one that uh you know they're trying to say look we're so open we're so transparent um but it's really difficult. It's even difficult when it come when you boil right down to it. It's not a public company, so there are a lot of things that it does not have to report, and it chooses not to report those things. Uh, but I think Alicia had, Alicia's piece had an awesome quote about their approach to media throughout the years. Um, it was just looking back and uh, going through you know, this, uh, this book that they have about their culture, about their leadership and talks about how, you know, being open is not something they ever planned on doing. That was, yeah. And this, they handed us this book at some point during the tour. It's called Huawei Leadership, Culture and Connectivity. It's written by someone who is on their international advisory council. I'm not sure who else is on it, but this is very much a piece of corporate literature, I would say. Um, But yeah, so I I was flipping through it once we got back and I thought that quote was really interesting. I'm just pulling it up right now. Um, But basically they're saying that, um, quote, Huawei's chance of success would be cut in half were the media allowed to meddle in the process. Fortunately, Huawei has been able to remain level-headed and shy away from the media for nearly a decade. So they said that this process of really, they kind of, I mean, looked at media as meddling in this process. They would have ruined the success of this company. Um, They said that that began in 1998 when the company's sales first hit the highest among the four Chinese telecommunications companies. So basically, once they started to get success they were saying, no, we're not giving access because this might hurt us. Um, they, there was another thing. At that moment, uh, Ren Zhengfei, the founder of the company, 
uh, and his company were not thrilled or proud. Instead, they felt more lonely, anxious, lost, and terrified than they ever had before. Since then, Huawei has opted for silence, shunning interviews and forums and dodging awards like an ostrich hiding its head in the sand. But it's also, um, that's very reflective. Whoa, <laughs> like an ostrich hiding its head in the sand. I mean, it's, and this is from a piece of company literature, guys. And to say that about your own company, it's but, pretty wild. But also, I think we just playing devil's advocate for all of like 10 seconds or as long as I need to. <laughs> um, this is, I, and I think we noticed that as well when we went to China as well, this is very indicative of their culture. Like they're very much like, a um, like submissive, very like, let's not, you know, show off or whatever you want to call it, despite their crazy chandeliers and opulent lifestyle <laughs> well that that was one of but, the contradictions right yeah, because they yeah. were saying you know we, our goal is to not be arrogant to be humble yeah um always know that there could be a threat coming around the corner so we always have to stay ahead of the curve yeah don't they have like but then black got, swans in their european campus that's... yeah apparently <laughs> as a sign of non-complacency but they um you know so they th it's part of this contrast that we see you know it's this um, be humble, but we've got a million dollar chandelier and we want to show this off to you. And we have to talk to the media, but like you said, it's deeply ingrained in their culture to be, um, to be caged off. Yeah. Essentially. And it clearly in the culture of this company specifically as well. And another contradiction I think, uh, is come to our campus. We're going to have this open interview, but it's going to be extremely structured and the first person that you're going to be greeted with and spoken to uh, is someone you can't actually name. Yeah. Like that to me is it's being open to a degree. Yeah. Like he, he said a lot of interesting things, but it kind of takes away from the fact that like just as a reporter, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's quite annoying to not be able to name that person. Well, for sure. And it comes down to um, a conversation I have with um companies all the time that they want to put an unnamed source in. I'm like, look, you, you, if you put your name to something, it just automatically has more weight to it because you're not hi hiding behind this cloak of anonymity. And, um, it is one of my biggest frustrations, but you know, especially when you've decided to fly across the world and on this tour of openness where, I don't know, I think he might've, um, I mean, on one hand, he might have spoken less freely if he had been named. But on the other hand, it gives you um, permission to say things that you don't necessarily have to back up because you, the accountability, the buck doesn't stop with you. So on that bigger issue of journalistic practices, it was also an interesting trip. Yeah, but even during that conversation with that gentleman, um, he mentioned how it's been a, over a decade since that, how they talk about Huawei. I think what he was, he presented to us the, um, yeah, the UK reporting exactly. And he was just saying how, you know, it's very different now. This is how like Huawei is this. And he kind of presented this, this very, a story that's very similar to how Apple was created or how Microsoft was created in your, in like their back garage or whatever you want to call it. And how, you know, he was talking about Ren and how he started the company. And it was a very humbling story. And I was very intrigued by why the story hasn't been said more and why hasn't it been said 
you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> because people don't believe it because they're not, they're not necessarily showing the receipts. So this dates back to 2012 when they wanted access to the American market and um, the Americans had concerns given um, Ren's ties, our previous employment with the Chinese military. And then Huawei said, fine, investigate us, do an investigation to see, you know, whether we pass muster. And so the Americans start doing this investigation and Huawei was evasive. They wouldn't answer basic questions. So you see the Americans, you know, doubting everything from, you know, the 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 founding story of this is that uh, Ren started this company with the equivalent of about 4,000 Canadian dollars um, of his own money with a few other investors. And the Americans even doubt whether those investors were part of the Chinese government or not. They say that Huawei never never proved it. Now, Huawei says that, you know, it presents this as a bootstrap story. And I think there are for sure different standards of transparency and openness when you speak about China and when you speak about America. So it, it just all boils down to the fact that they're trying to tell this story. I think they're, um, it's a challenge for them. Storytelling is a challenge. And then they have people on the other end that aren't necessarily willing to believe them. Yeah, I think this is kind of what it boils down to, what this whole trip boiled down to. Um, Eric Shu was saying in the interview that if Huawei had been born in the West, if it had been Apple or Google, or if it had been, it would be considered Apple, Google, Microsoft. But because it's a Chinese company, it doesn't get that credibility, I guess. And that's true. It It, it totally is. But there's also... I guess a reason for that and so for them it's it's trying to prove that they're trustworthy yeah and and but it also boils down to the fact that china in itself has not been known as a very trustworthy country for so many years they've had a lot of malpractice they've had a lot of human rights violations they've had a lot of issues and concerns that many countries not just the west have had 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 have had problems with um and I think you had brought up, Emily, a very interesting point um, during one of our conversations. I can't even remember when it was during the trip, but you had said, well, someone asked, like, how can we be more open? And you said, well, open up your cybersecurity centers uh, or the facility, the cybersecurity facility. Uh, let reporters go in and learn about that. Let reporters see what that's all about. Um, and and I think that's sort of what we want or rather what what the public would want to see so that there's, there's an understanding like, okay, you are open and you know, it's great that you're, you're calling reporters in, but it's a very, um, staged, um, affair, you know, like let's take you to the center. Let's show you this production facility. Let's show you this. Let's do an interview with the chairman and he'll answer all the questions that you want, but there's still, there's almost, there's almost still one more door that needs to be opened for there to be more transparency or, or I guess utmost transparency, if you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're, they're definitely on a learning curve when it comes to this newfound openness. And I mean, the stakes are high, right? The, um, obviously the smartphone market, the device market, they, they shipped 200 million devices. That's insane. That's a ton of smartphones. Um, so that's, that's about half of their business. And the other, the other part of their business in telecom services and equipment it's again, it's a massive market and people are about to buy all their gear for 5G networks. So they're, 
there's a high sta- there's high stakes here if people choose to shy away from Huawei because of the security risks. So it's those high stakes that are why it's even bothering to have this conversation with us in the first place. Um, I, I don't know. I think it was it was definitely a really interesting trip and uh, very cool to to get the chance to you know see to see what they're all about um, and to hear their side of the story. Yeah, and I think it is interesting, especially if you think about uh, what the average Canadian knows about Huawei. They probably heard about them for the first time in December when Meng Wanzhou was Absolutely. arrested. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. I think for Huawei, they're trying to get to explain to Canadians something other than what they're hearing in the news about the deteriorating relationship yeah. between Canada and China. So it was interesting to to hear that that story. And um, I, I do understand their frustration to an extent because, I mean, the first thing they said when we walked in, I thought was also pretty interesting. They had their backs up very much and said, media are biased you guys don't understand us but also like as we kept talking to them they started i noticed that they were getting a little bit more looser and they were saying okay well you know it's not your media it's (laughs) other media that's out there yeah and i'm not saying that media is biased but i don't know that that's the best approach to take but um they clearly need want to get their story out there because they don't think it's being out there yeah, um, it's. I think this trip was definitely a, a huge learning experience, not just um, understanding what Huawei is as a company, but dealing with big corporate structures like Huawei um, that aren't entirely transparent with their money, um, with their functionality. Um, but I think it was definitely, I don't know, would you, I think it was pretty um, <laughs> a good learning experience. Absolutely. Um Absolutely, it was. It was. Um, it was an, a really great opportunity to to hear their side of the story and to see what they're grappling with, and to be there as they're in the midst of this public relations crisis, um, as they're trying to sell their five G gear around the world. So I think, and I mean, also in the middle of Canada's security review over whether to keep allowing Huawei's equipment in our network. So seeing their response in the crux of this from their headquarters in Shenzhen was a pretty, pretty incredible opportunity. It was interesting to say the very least. Yes. (laughs) I think uh, that's all the time we have for this episode, but um, all three of us, I mean, I know I'm going to promote myself, but um, Emily and Alicia have written extensively about um, this topic and you guys should definitely check out their content on uh, for Alicia. It's, it's at, at Yahoo Finance. Alicia, what's your Twitter handle? It's, uh, at Alicia with a J, which is spelled A-L-I-C-J-A. And then um, Emily is at? At the Emily Jackson. So much easier. <laughs> I, I know. I, out of the three of us, I think I'm the one that has to spell my name the least. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, you guys should definitely go check their content out. They're superb journalists. And, um, yeah, this was a very an eye-opening experience. <laughs> and with that, I will say goodbye, everybody. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. Talk to you guys later. Bye.